Hello, everyone. Welcome to Connect This. Only this is a very odd show because my co-host, who is really, I think everyone would admit, the fun part of this show, is missing in action. So we're going to move forward and maybe he'll show up and maybe he won't. And I'll talk about that more in a second here. But Connect This, or more accurately, Connect This is a show that brings you real talk about broadband in the trenches from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, where I'm Christopher Mitchell in St. Paul. Today, we're going to be talking about some pretty cool stuff that is on the edges of connectivity. It's uh, what we do with the connections that we have. And um, in particular, there's a real doer mindset to this, which I think uh, the audience will appreciate. Um, as always, please uh, throw questions up because uh, we have uh, two people behind the scenes who are just hungry to evaluate your questions, to make judgments about your questions, and possibly share your questions with the entire planet and known universe. Uh, today, we're talking with uh, Keith Hansen, who is the Chief Technical Officer of Shreveport, CTO. Is that right? Uh, Chief Technology Officer. Technology. But Oh, see, I wrote down CTO and I told myself I would remember how to say it correctly. And then, you know, then you get the cameras on you, the big lights and uh, <laughs> just fall apart. Shreveport is in Louisiana and um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on there. And I know about it because of Angelina Panettiere, who is the legislative director of information technology and communications at the National League of Cities. Welcome, Angelina. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And this is ordinarily where I would introduce Travis Carter, but uh, Travis Carter uh, was going to try to join us using LTE and other um, various LTE services or, or wireless services as he's, I believe, out and about in Michigan right now. Um, but he may have had some problems or he might be working for a living. And so um, that is uh, disappointing, but um, uh, we're going to we're going to carry on as best we can without him. And then I'll tease him mercilessly about this for years. Um, we uh, have a opening question to just uh, to get us rolling. And so Keith, uh, you didn't have any preparation for this. So ask Angelina first. Uh, that's just to, you know, tell me something that sort of made your day to day that has to, something to do ten, like uh, some slight connection to broadband or telecommunications or something like that. I mean, it has a direct connection. And so you said Keith was the doer. I am not the doer. I am the talk about her, but like, <laughs> The world needs nerds, that's fine. Um, and so I was just sort of like forwarding articles around the office about all of these new non-federal broadband maps that are coming out. And like, obviously we're gonna talk about what Keith is doing, which is so cool. But like just thinking about all of the communities and states and companies that aren't waiting for the FCC to get its act together and are just doing something because like none of that effort is going to be wasted. Uh, it, it, this is getting very nerdy and we can talk about this as much as you want, but the, the FCC challenge process for their maps in a year, two, three, five years is going to be so important. It's going to be everything. And so all of these people who are doing all of this data collection right now just warm my heart because they're going to be so ahead of the game. And it's, it's just, it's so important and, and I love it. Awesome. Terrific. And Keith, uh, what's something that happened to you today that um, touches on, and you could you could push today to yesterday if you want to, you know. <laughs> uh, I may have to cover it this week, but we found some pretty interesting funding sources um, that kind of shake up 
the model of traditional funding. Um, you know, we're still exploring all the pieces, but you know, effectively, we're looking at everything from a full 100% build out to every single door with fiber in a purely private play with some pretty pretty big players. Um, which it's got its pros and cons to it, right? But uh, there's also another way that effectively you deploy capital that is not debt capital, but the equipment becomes leased um, to the city to operate. Uh, and so I, I don't know if your viewers know this, but uh, Louisiana is one of those states where we can't deploy a municipal fiber network and run it ourselves. Uh, the laws, I mean, you can, but you go through two years of battle and votes uh, out in the public just to like see the feasibility of it. Um, and it's designed in a way to effectively prohibit us from actually standing up something with, say, a three cent water increase on the bills for 30 years and raising you know, a revenue bond based on that. Um, so our only real options are to go to the people, uh, which is fine. Um, but during that, you know, two year fight, it will become a fight. Um, and all the mud slinging and dragging and all of that happens. And so I'm trying to avoid any of those things. Um, and some of those plans are starting to really take shape. And, you know, by December, we'll have some pretty big amount announcements, I think. But my goal is fiber to every door. And I, you know, I gotta, I gotta care about how we get there, but a big part of me is like, if we can get fiber in the ground in a way that doesn't set us up for failure in the future, like I'm looking at it. So, and you're, you're also particularly excited about fiber. That's not just like, um, fiber that only one entity can touch, but, but fiber that's gonna, you seem like a kind of guy who wants to make sure there's some innovation and interesting possibilities there as well. Yeah, well, and it's interesting, like, as a city, we have so many different problems. And one of the one of the things I love about uh, just our government here and where we're at, um, as far as uh, technologically, is that we're so far behind. Um, and I know that sounds weird, but like, it's a green field, right? Like, we're not digging around on top of other things. There's nothing, right? Um, we have like 3% residential fiber in our entire city. So the person who can get built out to every door the fastest, they're going to capture like 97% of that market. Um, now, but what we want to do is build an open access network to every door and then do economic dev deals where, you know, we might lease it per customer. So say, you know, you got to look at all the models and like all of that and all that's coming. Right. But what I prefer to launch is, you know, a network that we lease per customer so that your only startup costs to begin offering services in Shreveport will be marketing uh, <laughs> to get lit up on the fiber. And then you've got, you know, a decent amount of competitors based on service, customer service, uh, as opposed to, oh, well, we're the only ones with the lines in the ground. So you got to buy from us. Sure. The thing that I guess I would reflect on is uh, Craig Settles uh, relaunched Gigabit Nation today, which is uh, um, possibly the first broadband podcast that anyone really listened to. Um, I um, Craig started a one-hour show, and shortly after that, I was like, I'm going to do a shorter show. Maybe more people will listen to me. 
<laughs> so that was where uh, Broadband Bits came from. And uh, But Craig had me on today, and uh, uh, the two of us were just uh, talking a bit about things. And it kind of reinforced some things I did. I talked about yesterday with Drew Clark. Um, this is this is just me talking about talking with people um, in public, I guess. Um, but I'm super optimistic, whether it's the Treasury rules, which I'm going to ask Angelina about here in a second, because it's pretty big news, about $10 billion, and how it can be used for interesting projects. Um, but uh, there's a lot of things out there happening. And I feel like even if the infrastructure bill doesn't make it across the, the, the finish line, and I'm really hoping that it does, because um, that will um, really set us up for some interesting stuff in the future. Um, I, I'm super positive right now. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of good things happening. There's really good people getting into positions of power that that are making better decisions. I think, and there's a lot of reasons to be pretty hopeful, uh, even as um, you know we have some some pretty big concerns about about other aspects of whether it's a, um, a COVID nineteen or um, political instability. But uh, on the broadband front, we're we're doing pretty well, I think, as far as um, being on target to do some good work. Um, so we're going to hold on Telecom Peekaboo and hope that that segment is something we can do uh, toward the end uh, with Travis here as well. And we're just going to jump into it. Um, in in the We're going to come back to talking in for the majority of the show about um, it's going to be show and tell down there in Keith's window, I think, uh, talking about some of the stuff he's done. And then Angelina and I are going to be asking him about it and maybe um, talking about how other folks can do it and whether or not we can expect other cities to be doing things like this. Um, but uh, first, I want to ask Angelina, um, you have um, probably read the rules closer than I have, but the Coronavirus Capital Projects Fund, a $10 billion chunk of change going to states for broadband investment. Uh, the rules have come out, and uh, it looks to me like they did not make any of the mistakes that we would say they had made in the rescue plan um, generally. And so I was super heartened, and I'm very excited about this, uh, even though uh, I've not let read every last word in the rules yet. Yeah, so um, this was a, a really nice uh, thing to have happen this week. And um, the funny thing is that fund was not something that I think anyone had originally anticipated making it into the American Rescue Plan Act. Um, because it just wasn't on anyone's radar. And in fact, if, if you read the, the section of the bill that it's in, um, it doesn't mention broadband anywhere. So initially there was a lot of like, well, what is this money even supposed to do? But uh, the, the senators were very clear they wanted it to be used on broadband primarily. So um, the guidance for it came out this week from Treasury. And I can definitely see the influence of local government work on this you know i think all of the work that local governments and local advocates did um, on the initial treasury guidance for the state and local uh, coronavirus relief funding around the broadband provisions came through here um, with the bonus that the language from the statute for this doesn't talk about necessary investments. Um, I think Treasury got very hung up on needing to define the word necessary. And so putting a lot of limitations around how local governments could use that broadband money initially. Um, but that's not the case with this state money. So it's a $10 billion fund. It's gonna be formula granted out to all of the states. The states don't have to compete with each other for it, but they do have to have a, um, an approved project plan for it. So to back up a little bit, um, states are allowed to use it for 
uh, primarily broadband infrastructure, but basically any project that directly enables work, education, and health monitoring. So um, that could be broadband infrastructure. It could be broadband accessibility stuff. It could be uh, really improving community centers, community schools, health centers to enable, as long as it enables all three of those things, work, education, and health monitoring, then it is fair game. Um, it also puts a, a few requirements on states, but not a whole bunch. So. Um, similar to what we saw in the local fund, states are supposed to, if they build infrastructure, um, it should meet or exceed um, 100 symmetrical service. Um, it should prioritize last mile service. It should prioritize fiber. Um, it should prioritize investment in infrastructure that's owned or co-owned um, by localities, by nonprofits, by co-ops. Again, there's nothing here requiring states to do this. So a lot of it is going to be down to the individual states. So this is this is one of those things where your results may vary depending on what state you're in and what the politics look like. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of room here for very broadband friendly state administrations um, and states that are doing a good job working with their regions and their communities to do some good investment here. Um, and there's so much flexibility in there for them that if they can dream it, they can kind of do it. Um, it. It doesn't even fully forbid states from investing in areas that have some amount of existing service or that have other federal commitments. They just sort of gently encourage them to coordinate around those things and, and not duplicate existing federal funding. So, um, there's going to be a lot of, I think, importance in the federal review process. States are going to have to submit their plans and have them approved in order to access their funding. Um, but as those plans start coming out and being submitted to the federal government, I think that'll be a good chance for all of us to look at what states are doing and, and compare across state lines and see where cool things are happening and hopefully encourage more coordination on a regional level and, and between states that are doing this with this new fund, states that are thinking about ways to use their existing um, coronavirus relief dollars for broadband and then like marrying that to what cities and counties are doing too. It's incredibly exciting, although it's going to be interesting to watch a state like Ohio where um, they're set up a broadband subsidy program and, and it's not eligible to give any money to cities or local governments. Um, and then they're going to get this other money and that might have slightly different rules and they'll probably also try to withhold that from cities and local governments. And then the infrastructure bill, if that passes, will come through and they won't be allowed to do that. And so it's like the third bite of the apple, cities may actually have a chance to get some of this money. And that would be true as well down in Louisiana and other states that um, have in the past entertained too many shenanigans, let's say, from the big incumbent operators to uh, uh, try to limit who can get the money. Shenanigans. Yeah, well, oh, sorry, Keith. <laughs> shenanigans, Keith. That's a nice, polite word. <laughs> Like also, I think this creates a really interesting problem, um, and it's one that we've been talking to legislators about with the infrastructure and reconciliation bills, which is that, like, we absolutely want this federal money to be going out to states and cities. But also there are a lot of like small communities and smaller state broadband offices that are not equipped to handle that influx of funding. And the amount of complexity required to weave together all of these different federal programs, like that should not be underestimated. And so like the last thing we want is to see people turning down money because they think it's too complicated to work with. 
mm -hmm. um, or it's going to create a liability for them. And and so the the challenge for nonprofits like NLC, but also federal agencies to help people get smart about this is is just enormous. And like, I both really hope that this bill passes. And also, I know there's a lot of people in federal agencies who are holding their breath, terrified of what will happen to them if it passes. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm curious. And, um, and Keith, you can um, share any, uh, any insight that you might be able to but like, I've been encouraging cities, larger cities, cities like Shreveport, um, and the mayor's offices. So when this is over, you can just go run down to the mayor and, and make sure that 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 he or she is thinking about this, um, that they're talking to the governor's offices, because I feel like a lot of governors naturally think that um, should I take a call from Travis Carter live on the on the show right now? <laughs> um i'm gonna <laughs> i'm going to just pause for one second to send um this phone number to rye uh and rye if you want to text him um and try to coordinate with him i would greatly appreciate that um rye is hidden behind the scenes so people have to take um my word for it that he's really there uh he may have also fallen asleep because uh um my talking does that uh, at any rate the before i got that call from um from my missing action co-host which i'm excited i'm really hoping is not a ransom demand from his kidnappers um <laughs> uh is that um a lot of governors may think let's just put all this money into rural areas because don't they need it the most and there's a real tremendous need in urban areas that um that this money can be useful for whether that's infrastructure or whether that's other things so cities mayors need to like coordinate to like make sure that they are sending a good message to um the to the governors of their states about this need i think and so keith i don't know if you have any thoughts about that oh yeah so <clears throat> uh, i'll just quickly comment that like i have seen some of the you know there's there's some good senators out there that are you know, pushing the good word of broadband. And I, I've sat in meetings where, you know, other mayors and other rural cities and everybody's in the room and like, no, no dis disrespect or anything, but they are like just now starting to understand what broadband even means. Um, and so, um, you know, I think, I think you're right. There's going to be a lot of cities who probably miss the boat, even though the money's there just because they're not sure how to deploy it. Um, and so we're lucky here that, you know, we have a lot of savvy folks on staff in our city, uh, you know, on my team as well, uh, that, that kind of know what the message is and the opportunity is. Um, but also we're lucky that our governor set up a broadband office. Uh, and there's um, uh, a gentleman by the name of Vineeth um, who is our, I, I call him our broadband czar, uh, mm -hmm. Louisiana. And so all of the dollars that, you know, the state's receiving is now under his control. Um, and so there is a lot of talk about trunks going through the state and, you know, going into rural areas, but you're absolutely right. Like I do fear that, you know, our dollars coming down the pipe, it like here, the rough high level estimates is about 150 million to cover every street with fiber in our city. Um, you know, that's affluent, underserved everywhere. Right. Um, and so when you start looking at the numbers coming into our city, like, yeah, you know, five million was awesome. Right. But it is a drop in the bucket 
for a city of our size, right? And furthermore, there are more disconnected people in our city than anywhere in the rural areas around us. Um, based on sheer population size and especially the data we've generated so far in IT uh, in the city of Shreveport shows us this. It all correlates um, because while, yeah, you may have wires next to your house, uh, you probably have old wires, especially in our underserved areas uh, that haven't been upgraded in a long time old equipment hasn't been upgraded in a long time. And so you don't even get true broadband speeds in a lot of the neighborhoods around our city. Um, for instance, uh, my own assistant uh, can't get a security system installed because her internet connection is too slow um, in her neighborhood. And it's the fastest one she could buy. Um, and so, you know, we have those problems where there's, it's twofold, right? It's, it's a technology problem. It's out of date. But it's also the areas are underserved because they don't believe they're going to return the investment quickly enough. Uh, and so they don't invest in those areas. Well, they got a wire there, so move on. Um, and when I say they, I mean ISPs, uh, the private ISPs, rather. Uh, and so, you know, those are our problems in the city. And they are tenfold what rural people are dealing with. Um, it's either price is too expensive no one can afford it in those neighborhoods or it's some kind of like outdated technology problem uh, in our underserved areas. And so they don't adopt. And that that number is the critical one. Right. Like, I don't care what you say about what you got in your city. If nobody's adopting it, you have a digital divide. You know? Yes. Yeah. That has to be the goal. And people are using it to improve their lives. Like that's it doesn't at the end of the day, like it may matter to know whether it's because of price or because of availability, but fundamentally Fundament those have to be treated seriously by government, <laughs> both of them. <laughs> yeah. So any last words, Angelina, before we move on to the wild and wonderful wacky devices that Keith is developing? <laughs> no, I think that's a perfect segue to what he's doing. So, so Keith, I feel like, um, you know, uh, a number of the audience members already know what a Raspberry Pi is, but why don't you start off with just like um, um, maybe like uh, talking about how you got going with um, the the putting the sensors on the garbage truck and and just give people a sense of of what can just be done with a person that has too much time on their hands. <laughs> I do. Let's be clear. <laughs> I do not have too much time on my hands. I thought you might respond to that. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had that problem. <laughs> um, but I have a lot of balls in the air. Uh, and so, but anyway, so. Uh, a person who's not afraid to pull out a soldering iron if he has to. Let's put it that way. I, I definitely have calluses on my on the edges of my fingers uh, and have some weird funky smells burning sometimes. That literally <laughs> is my skin. But, um, but <clears throat> so, uh, so I've been writing code since I was about 12. Um, I, I consider myself very lucky. Uh, you know, I found a book in the attic and... Uh, it was a reference manual. I mean, it wasn't even interesting, you know, uh, for a programming language. And so that got me started. Um, and so I've got a lot of experience. Uh, when I was 24, I started my own software development consultancy, uh, ran that for about eight years. So, you know, everything from sales to project management to building out crazy custom integrations, et cetera. 
you know, I was either the practitioner on the bench early on, or I was managing the sales process and project management. So like, this is my world, like building custom solutions, you know, it's in my DNA basically at this point. So when I get appointed into this position, you know, uh, in about in 2018, I start, you know, my number one mandate was universal broadband. And the way we describe universal broadband, uh, you know, is effectively an affordable broadband speed internet connection that literally any any citizen can get access to. Um, and that, you know, we're critical about the speeds of those, right? Uh, and we want to make sure we have good connectivity to them, uh, first and foremost. And then, of course, they can afford it somehow, some way. And so it's a loose definition, right? But um, the easiest way to get there is put wires, you know, future-proof wires uh, down in every trench we can, right? Uh, so all that to say, um, when I get in the seat, I'm like, oh, cool, we got maps. Like, I've never looked at this stuff, you know? Like, I'm just, a, I'm a technologist, and I understand IT, and I understand business solutions, and I understand how to get through workflows and get people moving in the right direction, um, you know? And so I'm having to basically forklift our government's technology stack at large. Um, but again, my number, that was the second kind of mandate was like, we need a more responsive IT department than we've got, right? But that first mandate was always on my mind. And so I look up the maps and I'm like, huh, we have so much broadband, you know? Uh, and so my uh, at the time, my sysadmin was like, yeah, but you should check those maps out and where the data sources are and like, you know, all the problems with that. And my jaw hit the table when I started reading this. I was like, these are the least stringent requirements that have the most room for fudging I have ever seen in my entire life. And very little penalty if you just oh. do, if you just outright lie. Yeah. I mean, what you can't even tell, you know, if they're lying or not. Like they say one house on the entire census tract and then the whole census tract is filled in. And like, if you're not familiar with census tract, they're huge. You know, well, uh, I think it's I think it's census blocks. Um, blocks which aren't, yeah, yeah, they're not as big, but still, it's, it's quite significant, particularly oh, well, in, in lower density areas. Yeah, well, and I'm thinking down to street level, like that's what I want to see. Right. You know? So, right. like, I was first frustrated that I couldn't even see like what streets supplied by whom, and then when I call up our ISPs, they're like, "Yeah, that's that's proprietary data," <laughs> and uh, sorry, we we can't have that in the public record. And I'm like, "Well, can you just show me where the fiber is?" You know. And like, that's as far as I got, like mm -hmm. as far as I could get was they bring in their laptop disconnected from all the networks and plug in an HDMI cable and show me on a TV, very zoomed out versions of <laughs> where they're at. Uh, yeah, no, actually you remind me like um, North Carolina's legislature required um, some kind of like um, of disclosure at, at one point and um, AT&T would like, would file a eight and a half by 11 uh, printed out map of the state of North Carolina and where their service was super useful. <laughs> wow. And it wasn't 5,000 DPI either. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, I think all of your viewers probably know like this, this is the game, right? Like, and it's every person in my seat is dealing with this frustration. Um, and when I ask, well, how, okay, well, let's attack it from another way. Like how many subscribers are on your essentials plans, right? Well, they give me a big, broad, year long, you know, years long range of how many customers they've served. Not active, not, mm -hmm. you know, any of the numbers I'm looking for. 
because my job, I need to go into those streets and figure out how to get these people better internet, right? And whatever money might come my way, I need to know exactly where to deploy it. Not maybe if, if, you know, some kind of, you know, augment on something else, right? Um, so anyway, uh, I got fed up uh, about two years in and I had been talking about what we can do Oh, and I'm sorry, one of my other main objectives given to me was a smart city. Now we have, there's no fiber. I just told you guys that, right? Like there's no poles that have conduit in it. There, there's no fancy anything, right? Um, and so my first year was basically being sold all of these technologies, you know, uh, in pitch sessions uh, where it'd be like $9 billion, you know, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but like many millions, right? Like they want to replace every streetlight and, you know, they put NEMA socket sensors on it. And when a wreck happens, like the, the lights will blink, uh, intelligent traffic systems, you know, all the things all of us, you know, generally deal with. Um, but for out, outrageous dollars right uh and i gotta be honest like now three years in almost three years in like i see it like we definitely don't get fair shakes in government when we have bags of cash sitting around all the time right like that's the way vendors see us um uh, but like i told you i was the guy that companies called to have a firm build out brand new custom tailored solutions right uh, and so I had just gotten into Raspberry Pis as a side hobby to build a cyber deck uh, <laughs> with my 3D printer and things like that at home uh, as cool projects with my son. Um, and I had been using uh, Raspberry Pis uh, to teach kids in schools uh, all about technology and computing for relatively cheap. Uh, and if and people aren't familiar, Raspberry Pi is like a super small, cheap device that can be programmed to do lots of interesting things. Yeah. So, so what's like show 15 bucks? Show and tell time. So this one was $8 when we bought it, right? And this is a Raspberry Pi 0W with a GPS chip. Like I've got the broken one here so you can see how bad our solder job was. <laughs> um, but I use this for show and tell. And an antenna connected to the GPS chip, right? Um, so again, like this is less than $20 a device. Um, you may, you, you may, uh, get an enclosure or something, uh, you know, add on another $10, but I spent less than $600 on this whole experiment. Right. Um, and what I did was effectively the same thing that I used to do in high school. Allegedly. Uh, I mean, allegedly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, before I could get thrown in jail, jail, uh, <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd clip a wireless, you know, antenna magnetic onto my roof and me and the buddy would roll around all over and we would see what Wi-Fi was open and map it. And if it was open, you know, we looked around, uh, as, as crazy as that is, but you know, that was back in the day, probably even before like fire sheep, where you could just hijack someone's Facebook session at that point. Um, yeah, no, which no. I think at that point, most of the networks were a little bit more secured than, than that, but well, back then it was web only. And so right. web was so easy to crack. Right. Uh, it would take like 10 seconds. Yeah. The, oh, it was, it was, you know, there weren't like button clicks that you could just crack things with back then. Um, but, but the tools were, were open source and, you know, or so you easy. heard. Yeah. Or so I heard. Right. 
So uh, anyway, so uh, there's a tool called Kismet, and it's you use Kismet to do all kinds of stuff. Um, but one of the things a lot of people do is map wireless networks and open closed networks and things like that with it. And you got to have a GPS attached to your computer uh, or GPS signal, and you could even use your phone to get you know the 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 sentences that spit out from the GPS and parse that along with the wireless sensor as you're driving by and all of that. So like, as you can imagine, I was like, yeah, but we could just put it on this thing. Right. And so I started like one night, uh, you know, I had a little time on my hands one night and I was feeling the itch to hack something, uh, hack on things, not, not hack computers, but right. The, the proper term back when maker when, uh, hack, right? like, wrote the book hackers. Right. I yeah. understand the traditional sense of the word. And, uh, so I had that itch and I wanted to, to work on something and, and I had a rough day trying to get data again. And I was so frustrated and I was like, this is BS. Like, how do I get this? You know, there's gotta be a way. And it just like, it was like a lightning bolt hit me and I like a pile of bricks hit me. It was like, Oh my God, how would I see this? If I were standing in front of someone's door, how would I know they have internet? Well, I'd look on my phone for Wi-Fi. Right? And we had just gotten done like walking around neighborhoods. And I'll tell you about that project, too. But, you know, basically saying like, well, is there too much wireless in the area for us to hang wireless on poles and get blast Internet down the streets, basically? Um, <clears throat> and using the same tools on your phone to like scan the networks, you're seeing all the SSIDs, you're seeing the signal strength, all of that. And so you get a feel for how much internet is down a street that way. And so like all of these experiences like slam into my head in like one moment, you know, and I'm like, oh, oh, we're, we're literally, we're driving around measuring internet connectivity. <laughs> and I know I can put this on a Raspberry Pi, I think. And so I do some Googling and Kismet has uh, already built drivers for the Raspberry Pi. Like there's a nice, kernel that you can download and not have to recompile yourself uh, and different things like that. And you can set Kismet to not capture packets that are like encrypted or even unencrypted over the wire. You can configure it to only care about the SSID, the RSI, and the, um, the uh, GPS location and the timestamp, right? Uh, and so I compiled the kernel onto one of these. And we bought like a, a $12 uh, or I think it was like $16 at the time uh, on Amazon little GPS chips. And they're not great, um, but they work. Uh, uh, you know, these are horseshoes and hand grenades accuracy that we need mm -hmm. here. Right. <laughs> uh, and so uh, we built it to where it was a stored and forward model. You know, I'm not going to have Internet connectivity out there and I don't want to pay for hotspots and garbage trucks and things. I don't need a, yet another device that could fail in the field. Um, I'm already asking garbage truck drivers who have, you know, a huge day ahead of them anyway, please unplug this from the charging base and put it in your truck. And then when you get done, plug it back in. And like they have a lot of things they got to deal with in the truck already. And so, you know, I'm already asking way more than any other director has ever asked them to do. Uh, and, and so I didn't want to get another complication. So we just did store and forward stores it on the SD card. There's a, there's a little SD slot on the bottom here that, you know, gives you the storage, um, and loads up the OS and, and all of that. Um, and so anyway, all it does is when it's driving down the street, any vehicle that's in, 
every second is putting a GPS dot on a, in a file. And then next to that GPS dot, we have another file. I mean, next to that GPS file, we have another file that says, here are the timestamps of all the SSIDs, their signal strength, and their MAC address so that we can unique all of the data, right? And make sure we're not, you know, uh, counting SSIDs more than once as the truck stops, right? Because they make breaks and they stop, but that's a really good time to start picking up all the wireless, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we used garbage trucks. Uh, so anyway, that's the long story short. So we're out there mapping Wi-Fi access points, um, basically to show who's got likely, who's likely got internet and who doesn't. And we are making a logical leap here that, you know, if if they have wireless, there's probably an internet connection tied to it, right? And similarly, you probably don't have a lot of families who are straight wired only. Like it's not a substantial number of people who are paying for a gigabit connection in the 3% of town that could get it, who are, who are then refusing to have any wireless signal escape their home. <laughs> right, right. And, and that's so funny because like some people were like, you know, well, what happens if they have only wireless? I said, we won't see them. Period. Like, I, you know, but this is that horseshoes and hand grenades method that mm-hmm. I'm talking about. I'm not worried about the five people who do this in our city. And I guarantee you it's low like that. Right. I'm worried about what I can see, you know, and what I can see is that, hey, we got Travis. In. Travis, welcome. <laughs> hey, hey, guys. Sorry, I'm late. <laughs> awesome. No worries. We were just uh, we were just learning about the um, the way that Keith put together uh, using Raspberry Pi uh, devices to war drive garbage trucks to collect SSIDs to get a sense of the amount of wireless in different neighborhoods to as a proxy for how many people have internet access. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Here, you're in the process for doing it. Oh, we did the whole city, um, and you can actually see this on digitaldivide.shreveportla.gov, and we put out an ArcGIS story map for all of this. And we overlaid a lot of other census data that supported our, our conclusions as well. Um, but if you scroll to the bottom, the last map that you can see in that story map is our ArcGIS map of the data we record off the garbage trucks. Um, and so one of the cool things about garbage trucks is that they hit every street every week. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, so you also have change over time potentially then too. Exactly. Exactly. Like as soon as we started looking at the data, I was like, Oh my God, we're going to get this every week. Mm-hmm. Like we're going to be able to show people what we did, you know, like how often in government do you get to see the before and the, the beautiful after of a successful deployment? Like it's mostly about the success. It doesn't show you generally like the massive amount of leap that you made. Right. Um, and so like, that's why we put them on a garbage truck. I challenge you come up with any private citizens car business fleet uh you know private company publics even our engineers and our roadway guys like they don't hit every street every week right Mm -hmm. uh so the garbage trucks are like the perfect platform for any city to collect data as they drive around so i'm turning our garbage trucks into like super smart garbage trucks down the road there's other things that we're going to be working on um but uh but this was one of the first ones that we actually deployed out in the field and to be honest, like I hacked out the V1 protocol, like the V1 version of this overnight. I mean, it was not hard, right? I'm not a genius at, you know, trying to program these things. Um, it was very simple. 
Uh, and just so everybody knows, if you search City of Shreveport on GitHub, we open source everything we do. So if we deploy something, we're open sourcing it. If we hang it on a pole, we're open sourcing it. Um, and so we have an inside IoT team here of three people that do all of this. Uh, and then I hack a little every now and then. I hand them the bag of parts and I'm like, make this beautiful, you know. <laughs> uh, make this production worthy, please, you know. Uh, and then they take it from there. So, so Angelina, one of the things that um, Keith and I have, were talking about, I think, when we were chatting and then Travis and I have talked about before is, is you know, I get the sense that a number of cities have someone that has this sort of um, interest, but not all of them. And frankly, not enough of them. Uh, is that your sense as well? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, if if a city is big enough to have an IT department, then they're likelier to, to have a Keith around. And if they're not, they're not. Um, but, you know, most cities have a high school. Most cities have a community college nearby. And, and I think, like, that's one of the things that I know NTIA in particular is trying to get people thinking about is, you know, you don't have to have the people who do this be the people who work for the city. You can also like, please partner with your local schools, please partner with your community institutions and your libraries and get people who are interested in doing this stuff involved because they want to help. It's a good project for them. And and then everybody wins and and you're not as like capacity drained and boxed into like, well, we have to hire a consultant to do this and we got to put together an RFP and like that's going to have a cost. So no, just skip that part. Yeah. Like this was the most beautiful thing about this project. It was six hundred dollars. I got to P card that a purchase <laughs> card. Right. Like I have a one thousand dollar limit on that card and then I got to call finance. Right. Uh, and give them the heads up. I didn't have to call anybody. I the fact that you don't have to do any bid process for this should like perk everyone's ears up. Like sure. no paperwork. <laughs> Zero paperwork. That was the awesome part. If there's <laughs> any other C CIOs, CTOs out there listening to this, you know the hell that is procurement, right? And it's it's drags everything down that I'm trying to get done, right? Uh, and so like if you have a working solution that you made in your own shop that's it deploy it right obviously you want to make sure you're not going to take your whole network down and things like that but that's not what we're talking about here right this is you know flat files on a, a disk right like now when we did put some intelligence into it like when it finds its home base ssid it actually switches out of listen mode on the wireless and then you know connects to the hot spot where the the garbage trucks park and then it uploads all that data and that's how we collate it and put it on the map and all of that. Right. Um, but like, you don't have to do that. Like you could totally flat file, you know, sneaker traffic this back and forth to get really insight in your city. Even if you did it one time ever, um, you know, that, that will suffice. Right. I just got a text from Travis that LTE is not living up to um, it's uh, the promises that have been made by a, a certain lobbyists and, and uh, big companies. Um, so um, one of the things that I feel like is if you're willing to share it is like, I mean, it's one thing to do these sort of simple little devices, but, but you're um, doing some stuff that's going big time in terms of like storing surveillance video. And again, recognizing 
um, that um, uh, there might be um, some challenges in terms of traditional ways of of uh, getting surveillance uh, footage from business owners and things like that, who where everyone's interests are aligned. It's just that trying to um, deal with it is hard. And so, uh, can you share more about that box? Ah, oh, yeah, absolutely. I got I got a, a a broken one over here, but it's got all the parts in it. And I can walk you through how it works. But all right, so pretty basic metal enclosure. Um, you know, it'll dissipate the heat well, etc. You can see our cables coming out here. This is not the sealed version. I, I had them not seal it so I could take it apart and show people because I'm doing this like every day. I'm showing somebody about this so they have questions. But as you can see, this is a Raspberry Pi 4. No, I think these are the threes, but either way, it doesn't matter. This is a PoE Ethernet switch. You can see the power supply down there. There's a buck converter in here that takes it from the 110 to you know 12 and 5 volt. And then you can see kind of the powering here. Now, a lot of our newer builds have no moving parts, no fans, um, because we are hot boxing these. Um, and then that attaches to three $100 cameras that give me 4K footage. And then on the inside here, let me see if I can. Well, you can't really see it behind here, but there's two terabytes and four terabytes. <clears throat> the two terabyte drive is for active storage and the four terabyte drive is the buddy backup system. So one pole will back up to the other pole. And <clears throat> some of the reasons, well, a few more particulars. This is defined with, it has an internal network where the camera footage actually streams in. And then there's an external network that gets the connection. Right. So either it's a cable modem that's weatherized and ruggedized on the pole or it's an LTE modem that we hang the rabbit ears out, you know, give it some holes and cock it up uh, before we hang it. And then on the inside of that so that we secure it, because I built this with in mind that the that we would only have public networks that all of this would be going over because I don't know what infrastructure will have in place now or in the future. Right. Um, we're working on it, right? Uh, and so <clears throat> it, it needed to be built with the idea that we were decentralized um, for multiple reasons. Like one, you can't hack one camera or one endpoint and get into the entirety of our security footage. Um, that is, if you hack one of my cameras, you're going to have to hack 89 other camera systems, right? <laughs> um, there's no failure point either. So let's say the internet gets cut doesn't matter. We're recording the footage. And when it comes back up, we'll have that footage available, right? Um, let's say... Um, Sledgehammer to the box. What's that? Sledgehammer to the box. I missed it again. I'm sorry. Sledgehammer to the box. Yeah. Well, let's say someone climbs up there and rips it off the pole, right? And rips the hard drives out. Well, those are encrypted at boot. So nothing can be seen like that. There's no clear text data on this system ever. Right. Uh, other than like there's a dot file that says I am this poll. Uh, and when it boots up, it sends I am this poll to the API that it is on a software defined network over called zero tier. Zero tier is a really inexpensive method to get a software defined network and it has super advanced features. But it's super easy to get your phone on that network down to a Raspberry Pi to a Linux box, Windows, Mac. Doesn't matter. They're everywhere. Right. 
And basically, when I turn one of these boxes on, <clears throat> it phones home and says, hey, can I have access to my network, please? And then there's a checkbox we check on the back end. And then we have our own custom routing rules and different things like that. Um, but all of the systems that run this are Raspberry Pi and over a zero tier network, uh, all the way down to the streaming to the clustered back end services uh, that you'd normally rack a big server for. So I'm saying all of that to tell you it is zero impact on my data center, zero. I do not have a cluster of hard drives all over in my data center that my sysadmin has to go buy and rack and all of that. These are Amazon parts, every single one of these. Uh, and so anyone can build them. And we'll be once once they go on the first poll and we power it and we get that data feedback, um, we'll be open sourcing all of it. Uh, so anybody can use it and use it for themselves and their city. Or my hope is a private business comes back and says, hey, Keith, uh, you know, I know you want a thousand dollars a poll, but but we could do it for fifteen hundred dollars a poll. Uh, and you wouldn't have to worry about any of this anymore. Sure, that's great. Like, let's go, right? Like my threshold was $3,500 a poll at minimum, all the way up to $10,000 a poll by the fanciest vendors in our city, right? Um, and, and they would have been great camera systems, but it would all backhauled into our data center. It would have had all those problems I told you about, and it would cost 10 times as much, right? Uh, and so instead of nine cameras going on poles, we'll have 90 camera systems with three camera feeds covering uh, 310 degrees around the pole, right? I mean, at 4K. Uh, and, and the systems I was looking at and talking about $10,000 a pole, they were not 4K. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were 1080p, right? And so with like 4K resolutions on poles, there's so much you can do with that. With an edge compute device on the pole, like now I can do traffic counting. Now I can do like in real time, like now we can do license plate recognition, right? Uh, let's, let's, let's hold there for a second. Cause we want to, we want to, we want to dwindle on that. Um, but let me, what's the other thing you were going to say? And then we're going to talk about license plates. Oh, that's okay. We can shift. That's, that's, oh, okay. I'm um, already <laughs> <laughs> so um, Travis asked, um, how do you tell when you were doing the war driving? Um, Travis is like, um, is trying to keep up on the LTE. And so he sent in a, quest, a text question. Cool. Um, do you, do you have anything other than the fact that there was just a network present? Nope. <clears throat> we don't, we don't even care about speeds. I, I'm looking at entire neighborhoods disconnected. Like that's the problem, right? It's not just the speed, the speed would be fine, but whole neighborhoods where there are two access points on a street versus like, every house has three access points on a street right you know, those are massive gaps right and so that's what i care about i need to get that number up right but i right. do wonder like because i have full faith in your ability to tackle this problem and so i'm thinking a few years into the future where the speed is the point like is this something that would be able to scale to incorporate that level of data collection or would that get into that illegal territory <laughs> It would. Yeah, because anything that's like there, it's, you know, this is why it's legal. It is blasting it into the public space. It's saying my SSID is this over and over. And if mm -hmm. the mailman comes by, you can't throw him in jail for using his phone to see your Wi-Fi. Right. Um, like it's public space data. Right. And so that's why we we're able to do what we did. Um, anything past that, that's hacking. Right. Like, like in the newer tradition of the word, right? <laughs> right. But media, 
definition right. of the word hack, right? So let's let's talk about the license plates then, because um, Angelina, let me ask you to start off with this. When you hear um, cities doing license plate readings, do you get like a little bit of a, of a nervous like feeling of which direction is this going to go? Is this going to be about like realistic privacy, um, or is this going to be um, you know about like um, you know? any number of other things. Like I have to assume it's something that you have to deal with from people that have very different perspectives on it. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those things like facial recognition. That's just a immediate flashpoint in so many directions. You don't necessarily know why people are going to be angry about it. Yeah. So like one of the things that that's what I was expecting. And one of the things that I found really interesting is if you back up a little bit, Keith edge detection, that's interesting. Why is it interesting to do edge detection and what, what impact, what was the implication on, on privacy if you're doing edge detection? Uh, of license plates or yes. anything? Well, speaking of the license plates, yeah. And I mean, I'm judging from your face, I could see like I'm not being super clear in my question. So, um, no, no, you are. I'm just trying to figure out which way to tackle your question. But, okay. Um, <clears throat> so, it matters having compute on the edge. Because if you lose internet connectivity, you lose data that could potentially solve crimes um, or prevent them. Um, and with like uh, our real-time crime center, we're standing up inside of IT actually um, for incredible cost savings than most other real-time crime centers, as is my norm. Um, but uh, you know that's how I get a lot done. Is like I'm saving money. Like at the end of the day, you know. Um, <clears throat> well, and that's what I was getting at was that, was that it's one thing to like transmit 4k of data 30 times a second or 24 times a second or whatever you're doing versus, um, a series of digits. <laughs> Bingo. Right. Like, so there's, there's failure points that you now have to worry about and have backup connections for and all this stuff. But if you have edge compute, yeah, you may lose communication with the box for a little bit, but it's still got power. So you can always go back, right. And look at that traffic counting, et cetera, like weather vanes, you know, uh, temperature sensors, uh, taking LoRa radio waves and transmitting across faster circuits with data, right? Like all that becomes possible on the edge. And that's why the edge compute is so important. It's both disaster recovery, right? Uh, because you have now 90 uh, devices out there that are fully independent and can register all this information. <clears throat> uh, without, you know, short of power loss. Uh, and I, I don't really want to hang batteries and things like that on it. Although we're looking at solar power panels, um, you know, uh, versus centralizing all that data and ferrying it across the internet. Right. Right. And then, well, then you have the privacy implications of it as well, because it's one thing. I mean, you could use your devices to say to send a list back constantly of I'm seeing this license plate, I'm seeing that license plate, and you just have this massive list. But with the edge compute, you can actually just say flag me if you see these license plates. And yeah, at that I'll point, post. you're not storing all. You're not creating a database of where all the citizens are, which uh, is uh, is a major concern for people legitimately. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll say this, like we looked at all of the private, like I'll, I'm a privacy wonk personally. So, um, you know, I have my own databases of photos and different things like that, running open source software on Raspberry Pi clusters at home, backing up software at home. You know, I'm still, I'm on Facebook. I'm on the things that we all know are awful for privacy, right? 
uh, because I'm a human and I, you know, I want to interact with family and things. Right. We all need to know what our friends, spouses, names, and children's names are. That's that's why I'm on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) And birthdays. Yes, exactly. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, I, I sympathize and empathize with, with privacy advocates. Right. And so I looked at every single bad rollout that I could find on a real-time crime center and every single good rollout on a real-time crime center. And the good ones had all the blessings from all the privacy orgs because they stayed under 30 days of data period in a story. Right. And our, our cameras on poles are anywhere from depending on the amount of change in frames because it's H264, but depending on the amount of change per frame, you know, we're able to store anywhere from two to four weeks uh, of footage on a two gig, uh, a two terabyte drive. Um, and it's, it's totally, it, it allows us to like via software define how many days it's not just storage based. Right. Um, so we can say three days uh, of storage on that because it's sensitive or, or, or maybe the HOA paid for the camera and this is the timeline they want. Right. Um, like that kind of stuff. So, so that's possible now. Uh, because of this distributed system, right? And the and the data lives there and in one other spot in the city, um, and so it's available. It's always available. Like that's that's the beauty about edge compute. And you're not backhauling things to super big, powerful machines out in the cloud that cost a lot of money, and you have to have dedicated connectivity to. You're putting a neural compute stick for a hundred dollars on top of this Raspberry Pi, and now you can do open AOPR, right? automatic license plate recognition um, you can do which which you know even the just base models of tensorflow AI for recognizing a license plate you know that'll get you like 80% of the license plates so you don't have to go out and spend tons and tons and tons of money on it now I'm talking to vendors and they want to sell me another box right? I don't like that. I like open source. It's it's very transparent to the citizen, right? That's something, that's one of the main reasons we made it open source. It's like, if you don't trust me, you don't have to. Like, go get your geek friend to read this code and tell right. you what's going on, you know? Well, what is, what is the process then for you to produce 100 of those? Um, you know, is it is it best that you assemble them with your team or can you, you know, under procurement challenges, I mean, can you have a contract with someone that assembles them for you and things like that? What's the, what's the real life oh, approach I to that? I love to have a contract with a business that could assemble these for us. <laughs> Cause like my IOT team is kind of a hit squad. Like I give them a problem. I'm like, build a device, you know, um, like fleet tracking. So we've got, yeah, they want to do it the first five times, but they don't want to do it a hundred times. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like they, they signed up to solve lots of problems with me. Right. But this is our uh, fleet tracking device. And all told, it's like 40 bucks to build one. Uh, and then like right now, we have a vendor that's charging us $35 a month, no matter how many megs of, we, of data we use. And we're getting like every second pings, which is nice, not required, right? We don't need that level of data granularity. We need once a minute, right? Uh, and so for like 50 bucks, I can dev- build a device and then sign up for hologram or one of those resellers of megabytes uh, over LTE, right? And pay like 34 cents a meg and send 111 bytes every minute, which you don't even touch the meg. Yeah, you might you might pay three dollars a month at that point, right? Uh, and so we're going from 35 dollars a month per car tracked 
two, three dollars a month per contract. Uh, building with software that's going to be open source and then ties into our ArcGIS integrations and gives a nice interface to roll back the time, et cetera, right? Um, so like this is the stuff you can do when you start putting compute on the edge. Just putting a dumb camera and connecting it gives you more problems and more headaches down the road than if the system's contained in itself on the, on the pole or in the car, et cetera, right? No, and this, gonna... this is the smart technology we're talking about. Like all those many millions I told you about, like it's a NEMA socket. Like we can build right. that. In fact, our LSUS, LSU Shreveport here had a kid show me, I mean, a kid, he, he's a grad student, right? But like he's in grad school and his senior project was a water meter that used a Raspberry <laughs> Pi, I'm sorry, an ESP32, which you can code with Arduino code, and then a very cheap, like $8 part, and it radioed it back over his Wi-Fi. He knew exactly how many liters every day of water his family was using, right? Uh, really cool, you know? Now, can you deploy that to 65,000 houses in government? Pro probably not, right? But the point is, is that like you can get things done very cheaply and get good insight from these tools, either from your citizens and citizen scientists or, you know, from a department like what we've built here, you know? Well, this is, I think, useful as we um, as we wind down the show here. Um, Angelia, I wanted to, to come back to you because I feel like, for me, this is a reminder that even I sometimes buy into this idea that, like, well, the government's behind the times and slow and and, and you, we need, like, the private sector to do stuff and... Um, I think whether it's you know Ammon Idaho, which is doing this amazing stuff in terms of moving forward with a vendor, but but you know like it's crucial to it um, with the people that are in Ammon. Um, cities are doing really interesting things that just they often don't get credit for. It feels like. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think it. it I mean, this is I, obviously I work for cities, so I believe this to my core. But there's this idea that like the public sector will never be able to compete with the private sector, and should just assume that all of their like talent has to come from the private sector. Everything has to be contracted, and that's just not the case. Like, there's plenty of awesome people like Keith who want to work in public service and want to do this stuff, and and I think um, this is one of the things that we're grappling with in an interrelated field in cybersecurity where there's this idea that like we're, we're just never gonna be able to deal with this problem. And, and I think um, we just need more people like Keith and public service who are willing to try things and, and fiddle around a bit and come up with new ideas and new ways of doing things that maybe are cheaper than everybody thought they might be. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I so support that. And in particular, I feel like there is a question of, of um, how do we make sure that people like Keith don't get run out because they're awkward. They're asking too many questions. They're like, why are we doing things that way? <laughs> like, we uh, need to make yeah, sure that the bosses of people like Keith when they're coming up are, are friendly to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah we got to make sure our elected officials appreciate you and, and all of your counterparts. Yeah, I did definitely want to add like, the reason I'm able to do this is because I don't have to use large sentences to explain things with my mayor. He's my age. He's called our technology mayor, basically, by most in our city. Um, like this is a major prong of his whole, uh, you know, mission here is to bring us into the 21st century. Um, and so that opens so many doors for me and makes sure that I get support. Right. Um, but I'll be honest, like not every 
elected official here loves what I'm doing and how fast I'm going. And, you know, they want to see us plot along, but I don't have time for that. These citizens don't have time for that. Like we got to do things. And so more to your LPR discussion and, and privacy and all of that, like it's privacy first for me, for sure. Uh, and especially like this is the most private way to do it, right? These boxes with hard drives on the pole. And uh, yeah, and, and let me just jump in because this is something that um, I feel like people don't always necessarily appreciate, which is that um, let's say that there's a, um, a, a person stolen a car and i don't know do you want to describe the actual situation that that we talked about that um That's right um, yeah so so just recently we had um it was in a very populated intersection two stolen vehicles um largely juveniles uh, are involved in these these things here right now um but you know uh with the unrest from the pandemic uh all the financial issues all those root causes that lead to crime you know that's all happening to us just like it's happening across the nation um, but we had a rolling gun battle in the middle of a major intersection and thankfully like no one that wasn't gang involved was killed but folks who were shooting at each other did hit each other and many went to the hospital and one died and these are teenagers right now tell me that you wouldn't want to know that those stolen cars could have been stopped before they ever crossed each other's paths, right? Like that's what license plate recognition does. That's a hot list, like what you were talking about, right? Uh, and so if we were able to say, hey, these two stolen cars, they've been on the road for like two, three days or so, right? They would have gotten picked up somewhere by one of our 90 camera systems that has AOPR on it, right? And then that alert would have went to the real-time crime center and then any detective that was looking for that would have been notified, right? And that's and that's where I mean I think it's important to also get a sense because we talk about this sometimes with smart grid because like on a not smart grid, if the power goes out, a lot of times you send ten crews out depending on the size, and they're driving along looking for physical problems, right? Because they don't know that's ten crews. And similarly, if you don't have smart on the edge intelligence that can give you the license plates, you might have ten police officers who are diverted from work that they're doing, or half diverted, or they have to like keep this in the back of their head. That are they're now less productive at doing other things because they're they're keeping an eye out for these cars or something like that. I mean, we've had a whole thing up here with like um, teenagers, um, um, you know, stealing cars, uh, even doing actual carjacking for joyride reasons and like if they have a sense that like they're going to get picked up within a half hour of doing that like they're not going to do it as much Absolutely. so 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 i mean like this is like it's a whole it changes the game it's not just a matter of like oh we get the car off the it's like it changes all the incentives and it frees up a lot of resources which saves money well i'll say this too like we're a hundred officers down from where we should be in our police department right now and that's been the story for a minute and our uh legislators and everybody they're working on that right but like when you're 100 officers down you're not posting up on every corner you're fighting fires right like uh, well i guess bad analogy in first responder sense but like you're doing priority triage right uh and you know it's really hard to stay on top of all the things that you could be if you're that short staffed you know and so they're they're doing everything they can in our police department. They're amazing people over there. I love them to death. Um, but this is one more tool in the tool belt 
that they don't have to worry about until we know, right? Like this is the stolen car. This is the make model vehicle. Here's who's riding in it. Yes, they have long guns. Go pick them up, right? Like this is the direction they're heading. Like that would be an example report from our real-time crime center um, to the dispatchers to let people know out in the field in a proper channel, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, we're, we've run out of time and Travis is, uh, well, first of all, let me say this. <laughs> if anyone saw those comments um, that got promoted a second ago, I just found out that I have the power to promote comments and maybe that power will be taken away from me. But that, that was me <laughs> making a mistake and then writing whoops and promoting that. So um, I don't want Henry to anyone to think that Henry has lost his, uh, his sense um, uh, working behind the scenes, producing this. Um, but uh, we might have some fun with that in the future. If that power doesn't get taken away from me. Um, so I want to thank uh, Henry and um, and Rye behind the scenes making this uh, work out. Um, Henry writes in the chat, he was very confused why the system was suddenly working against him. <laughs> um, uh, Travis um, is has been here um, throwing in a few questions, but is um, is relentless in his criticism of LTE merely because he cannot participate in a basic video stream. Uh, he's even having trouble hearing uh, the the conversation. So, but Chris, um, it's the future of connectivity. Everything, yeah, it's uh, absolutely it's uh, the future. Wireless is everything as long as you um, don't care that it won't work many of the places you go. Um, <laughs> like, um, the uh so we're gonna save the telecom peekaboo for a time when travis will be able to see it and we'll be able to talk about it um we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here unless there's any let me give it a chance to angelina and, and keith any final comments you know what no <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna be sassy but i decided i don't want to go out on that note <laughs> I don't understand, but I appreciate it. I, I always feel like I want to go out with something dramatic and sassy. But uh, um, Keith, uh, is there anything you wanted to? I mean, this been this has been terrific. I really appreciate it. And Angelina, I'm so happy you were able to join us to help provide some context. Um, but uh, Keith, thank you so much. Yeah, I, absolutely. I really appreciate being on. I love the show. Uh, big fan of local control. <laughs> uh and and what they do uh you know at the nlc thank you guys for for inviting me to this you know the only thing i i'd encourage is like like you guys said like there are other ways to do this than just hiring people in government but also like when if you're a leader and you're listening to this and you're in government and someone approaches you with a wacky crazy idea like don't just toss it aside because you're slammed you know like think about it like try and make it happen and give them some room to do it and it's you know as long as it's a cheap fast experiment there's not a lot of risk there right like i just i need to hammer that home for our government folks like you're not risking a lot when we're talking about six hundred dollars a thousand dollars etc when we're all used to 50 grand contracts for like one user you know um and so yeah i just i'd encourage you to think about the build versus buy discussion after seeing what you saw today, hopefully, uh, in a little different light. But you know, Keith, I'm gonna throw that back in the other direction too, and say that especially these elected officials, their brains are going in a thousand different directions. And and so I think um, for those of us who work in the tech space, either in like a hands-on practical way or the policy side, we have to remember to not speak in a foreign language 
-hmm. we have to explain what things do and why they're important and not just go straight to like this is the law and this is how it works and like this is but like what does it do for people's lives and articulate yeah. that better because i think there's a disconnect and i think we can get past it yeah i have to use as few words as i possibly can all the time and i'm not saying that as an insulting way i just know technology folks like me can go on and on and on and on and rabbit trail <laughs> you know and get in lost in buzzwords and vernacular and you're absolutely right like i am getting better about that i am not great at that yet so having a mayor who can translate for me sometimes is amazing let me just say <laughs> it's a valuable skill it is <laughs> yes I want to also thank Travis uh, for for jumping in, trying to join us uh, against uh, the odds when the wireless spectrum is 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 not in your favor. Um, we have shows lined up for the next, I think, four weeks or something like that. So we are going to be more or less continuous, and let's hope that Travis will be back on his fiber soon. Uh, but until then, um, I'm really uh really enjoyed this conversation and this has been another episode of connect this thank you so much for your time